You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we are going to finish up John, chapter 2, this morning. And we'll read together verses 23 through verse 25. And then we will pray together. John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Father, your word is before us. It is in our hands, in our laps. We need nothing else from you than what you have already said to us. This is sufficient for all life and godliness, and we thank you that you have committed it to us, that you've given it to us, and that we might know you through it. And so we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might behold in your word wonderful things, and that you might speak to us through the text of Scripture that is before us, that we might know more of Christ, more of our Savior, and might be drawn closer to him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Not too long ago, about a year and a half ago or so, I had a friend of my family that whose son ended up landing himself in the county jail. And not that I was asked by the family to do this, but I made arrangements to go in and visit him. So I got in and sat down in the attorney visiting area, which is a little less secure than the normal visitation area. I was kind of behind some locked doors off in a corner. And and uh, I knew that this this young man had at one point made a profession of faith in Christ. He had attended church youth group and had even been baptized, and yet, from apparent, all apparent purposes, he was not saved. There was no evidence in his life, no fruit, nothing in the direction of his life or in what he was doing indicated that any of his supposed confession of Christ or conversion was genuine in any way. And so when I went into the jail, I intended for one thing, and that was to share the gospel, the true gospel, while I was in there with him, and that was what I went in to do. Now, this is not any family that's associated with this church, nor is this uh, family ever even been to this church, nor has this young man ever been to this church, so there's no possibility that you should be trying to think of, of who this is. He's not currently in our youth group, and uh, though some of them look like future felons. <laughs> so uh, I went in and I sat down in the area there, and after a little bit of chit-chat and some small talk, I said, um, now, you had a religious experience with Jesus at one point that made you think you are a Christian, didn't you? And he said, yeah, that's true. So would you mind explaining to me or describing to me what happened? What, what was that religious experience like? He said, well, I was, I was part of the youth group, and the, our church had a big youth event with a bunch of other churches, two or three other churches, and it was a big thing, and there was a bunch of music, and um, the music really sort of drew me in and made me feel very sort of close and like I needed Jesus, close to Jesus. And the speaker got up and, and said if we wanted to be close to Jesus and get a second chance that we should come forward and he said, I came forward and prayed with the guy there, and about a week and a half later, I was baptized. 
And I said, do you think that you became a Christian that night when that happened? Now, if you're discerning, you can already say that there's a half a dozen problems with the testimony that I just gave you. But I asked him, do you think that you became a Christian that night? Were you born again? No, I don't think I was. And I said, well, let me describe to you what you should have been told that night and why you should have went forward that night. And then I proceeded to go through the gospel. I took him through the law and I told him the gospel. Now, I don't think that that night in the jail that he got saved, and I don't even think he's saved today, but that's not my job. I shared the gospel with him and he understood it. I talked to him about repentance and about faith and what he needed to do and what he needed to turn from and how it is that one gets saved. And I prayed with him that night and I left him there. I don't think he got saved that night. And I don't even know that if he's saved yet today, but he heard the gospel and he understood it. Now you probably know people like that, don't you? I've described at least an encounter that I think is similar to probably something that everybody in this room can, can um, agree with, or at least you've experienced somebody in your life, maybe somebody you went to school with, uh, a sibling, a relative, a co-worker who had an experience of sorts with Jesus, a very emotional experience, and they prayed the magic prayer, you know, the sinner's prayer, the one that's found in the book of, well, never mind, it's not in there, but it's the sinner's prayer, the magic prayer that gets everybody saved, right? And they prayed the prayer and they showed a real religious fervor for a long period of time, and then they turned and walked away from the faith. And today, like the morning dew, their faith and their belief and their confidence and trust in Jesus and hunger for all things righteousness has just gone away. And today they don't walk with the Lord. If you had asked me before I trusted Christ if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. And I would have said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I believe that He loves me and I believe that God sent His Son and I believe all of that. And I cannot even tell you how many dozens of times I heard the Gospel from people in this church, because this church was instrumental in getting me saved, from people in this church I heard the gospel dozens of times. And I could have recited John 3.16 and all of the verses that have to do with salvation. But it wasn't until the last night of camp, on my first year of camp, as probably a 13 or 14 or 15 year old, somewhere in there, that I heard the gospel and as if for the first time I understood that I was a sinner. And that God was angry with me a sinner. And that I was dangling, as it were, over an eternal hell, which was the just punishment for my sin. And that the God who was angry with me was the one who was holding the thread from which I dangled. And I was terrified, horrified. And when the speaker finally said, if you would like to trust Christ for your salvation, we would like you to come up here. And I jumped up from my seat as if I'd been sitting on a branding iron for an hour. I got up, I would have swam across an ocean to get to Christ if that's what he had asked me to do. And I got up out of my seat and I went forward. That night, I trusted Christ for salvation. It was the last night of camp. And we all sat around the bonfire that night and sang songs. And while everybody else thanked God for the weather and the cooks and the comfortable beds, whatever that means at camp, and all of the friendships they had made, and while everybody was sort of trying to get everybody's address and everything, I sat around the outside of that circle and I cried like a schoolgirl because I was so thankful for salvation and forgiveness. Now, I went to camp that year with two of my best friends. We hung out together and we did everything together. We spent time at school together. We hung out at school together. We hung out before school. We hung out after school. We hung out after every school break. We were the best of friends. We went to school that, or went to camp that year, all three of us together, and we shared a cabin. And that night, when I trusted Christ, I had sitting on my right-hand side, my cabin counselor. On my left-hand side was my best friend in all the world. And on the other side of him was a girl interest that he had. And on the other side of him was my other best friend. And the other side of him was his girl interest. I had no girl interest at camp. That was the story of my life, basically. 
But I was there with all, both of those guys, and that night after I got saved, I said to my other friend, the next morning, I said, did you get saved last night? Did you trust Jesus as your Savior as well last night? And my one friend, my best friend in all the world, he said, yeah, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, I, I believe God loves me and died for me. And I trusted Christ for salvation. I, I, I prayed, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. And my other friend, he asked Jesus into his heart when he was four years old, so he was good to go. His mother, his grandfather, whoever it was, had prayed the prayer with him. Today, neither of those two men walk with Christ. Neither of them gives any evidence whatsoever that they were ever saved. They asked Jesus into their heart, but neither one of them ever repented of their sin and trusted Christ for salvation. You know somebody like that? Jesus told us that would be the case. He said there will be tares among the wheat, there will be goats among the sheep, and that's what the nature of the visible church is like. In every gathering of sheep, there are goats, people who think they're sheep, but they're not. They hunger for goat food, not sheep food. There are tares that think that they're wheat, and they look like the wheat, and they act like the wheat, but time will tell that they're not wheat at all. They're just tares. Jesus said on Judgment Day there will be many, many who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because I never knew you. Not I knew you for a period of time, and now I don't. I never knew you. You never did belong to me. Depart from my presence. Hard words, aren't they? And the modern gospel that is preached from most pulpits and in most venues today that offers Jesus to people as the answer to their prosperity problems or their peace problems or the one who came to give them purpose or the one who's there to fill the void in their heart and God's just longing for you to fill the U-shaped void in His heart and won't you please, please come to God and make Him happy and make Him excited to have you on the team? Won't you just join the team? That type of evangelism does nothing but exacerbate the problem, make it much, much worse. It gives people a false confidence that they shouldn't have. It allows them to trust in a false gospel which cannot save. And they have a false Christ and a false confidence and a false hope that they should never have to begin with because they're not genuinely saved. And since it was going to be that way in the future, it is no surprise for us to find out that in Jesus' day that it was like that with people that claimed to believe in Him. And we see a glimpse of those type of unbelieving believers in John chapter 2, in the passage that we just read. Beginning in verse 23, this comes on the heel of Jesus cleansing the temple. Read the passage again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, interesting phrase, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. These men are unbelieving believers. Now this happens, as I said, right on the heels of the cleansing of the temple. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the temple police, whoever the Jews were that were mentioned earlier, came to Jesus and requested of Him a sign. And He didn't perform any sign for them. They wanted a sign as evidence that He had authority to do what He did in the temple because they understood the messianic implications of what He had done. And Jesus refused to do a sign on their terms, on their time, at their request, But for the rest of that week that he was in Jerusalem, after the cleansing of the temple, for the Passover, and then for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which went seven days, John says he was doing many more signs. In fact, if you look down to John chapter 3, verse 2, when Nicodemus comes to him, he says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus in Jerusalem had seen the signs that Jesus was doing. Everybody else was seeing the signs that Jesus was doing. And I assume that even the Jews who asked him for a sign in the temple saw the signs that he was doing. 
Now, John doesn't record for us what these signs were, but it says in verse 23 that the people who saw those signs during that week were believing on him. And initially, our initial response, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, great, that's good news. Many are believing. The crowds, the multitudes are turning. This is the response that we would expect from the Jewish people who are longing for their Messiah, waiting for their Messiah, can't wait for him to show up. And then he finally shows up and he does signs. And John says many of them were believing on him. But from what John says in the rest of this passage about those who were believing, it's evident that this belief was not a profound belief. It was not a deep belief, nor was it a saving belief. There are two things that John says that describes these people that indicate that whatever belief they had, whatever type of commitment they made, that it was not a saving commitment to Jesus Christ. The first thing is, John says, when they were believing on him, when they saw the signs. That's the first indicator. It was a sign-based faith. They saw the miracles, and they saw what Jesus did, and they said, oh, we'll believe on him. And they committed themselves to him, and the word for belief there, believed on him, many believed on him, pistuo in the Greek, and it means to have faith or to place your confidence in something, to commit or entrust yourself to someone, to place your belief or your faith in someone. Pistuo, remember that word. They believed on him when they saw the signs. So they saw the evidence that he did and they believed whatever claim it was that Jesus was making and they committed themselves to him. They trusted themselves to them. But it was based upon the signs. Now what kind of a faith is it that believes when it sees only evidence? What kind of a faith is that? A faith that is there in the presence of the signs, what will happen to that faith when the signs dry up? The faith will dry up. A faith that is based upon an emotional experience Someone has an emotional experience. They hear the emotional worship. They hear an emotional sermon. In the fit of an emotional burst, they run up front and they make an emotional commitment to Jesus. Then they go to sleep and the next morning they wake up and the emotion is gone. And where's their faith? Their faith was based upon the emotion. And when the emotion dissolves, the faith goes away too. Same thing with a faith that is committed to Jesus on the basis of the signs. And the the sense in the Greek is, with the imperfect tense, that as long as they were seeing the signs, then they were believing on Him. But when the signs weren't there, their faith wasn't what it should be. It wasn't a genuine faith. It wasn't a saving faith. Because it was based upon the signs. It wasn't belief in Him, or in His Word, or in His claims, or a commitment to Him. It was as long as they saw the signs, then they were believing. The second thing that John says, which indicates that this was not a genuine saving faith, is in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. The word entrusting there, pistuo. The same word for believing in the previous verse. It's a little wordplay that John uses. They believed on him, but he did not believe on them. It's kind of the idea. That's the essence. They committed themselves to him, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, if you think that the belief of the multitude was a genuine, saving belief that came to Christ for eternal life, and for salvation, for redemption and forgiveness, if that's what you think that they wanted when they believed on Him, then you've got real problems here because Jesus did not commit or entrust Himself to them. And so I ask you this question. Is it possible for somebody to entrust themselves to Jesus for salvation, for eternal life, and in turn have Him not commit Himself to that individual? Is that possible? It's not a trick question. Is it possible for somebody to come and commit themselves to Jesus for eternal life and salvation and in turn have him not commit himself to that individual? 
Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want to show you something there real quick. This happens after the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek me not because you see signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. The people are following him. What does Jesus say? I know why you're following me. I mean, to follow me for eternal life, that's one level. To follow me for because of the signs that I did, that's a big step down. You don't even follow me because of the signs. You just want your belly filled. And he knew it. He knew why they came to him. This guy's like a vending machine. You don't have to put money in. You just show up and he multiplies what you have and he feeds the stomach. He'll feed you. And they're following him around because he gave them food to eat. And he identifies their motive for coming. They came for all of the wrong reasons. Not even for the signs but only to be filled, and not to Him for eternal life. But then Jesus, later on in John 6, beginning in verse 35, switches the discussion to spiritual food, and He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to Me will not hunger, and he who believes in Me will never thirst. This is the lesson that everybody should have drawn from the multiplying of the bread and the fish and the feeding of the multitude. They should have watched what Jesus said and said, Ah, He's the one who can feed us. If He can do this physically, He can also do this spiritually. When there's no need for us to ever hunger, there's no need for us to ever thirst. If we have Him, He will fill our every spiritual need. That's the lesson they should have drawn, but they didn't. They wanted food in their stomachs. They had no concern whatsoever for eternal life or spiritual life. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. They didn't believe because of the signs. What were they after? They were after the food. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen what I've did, you've heard my claims, but you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That sounds like a commitment, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus is saying. You're not believing. If you come to me for eternal life, I guarantee you I will not cast you away. If you come to me for the right reason and the right motive, for life eternal and for forgiveness of sins, I will not cast you out. That's the commitment that he makes. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, that is the Father, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Not he will lose some. Not he will lose some who fall away from the faith and don't continue in the faith. Not he saves a bunch and a bunch of them sort of trickle off and end up in hell. I lose nothing, Jesus said. That's the commitment that he makes. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the commitment that Jesus makes to those who come to him for the right reasons? What is the commitment? I will raise him up on the last day. I will lose none, and I will not reject him. I will not turn away the one who comes to me for the right motive, seeking the right thing, and I will not lose any of those who come to me, and all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise all of them up at the last day to the resurrection of eternal life. Now, is it possible for somebody to come to Jesus for salvation and eternal life and in turn have Jesus not commit himself to them? Is that possible? The answer is no. You can come to Jesus for a hundred reasons that will all result in your damnation, but it's not possible that you can come to Christ for forgiveness, for salvation, for deliverance from your sin, for eternal life, and have him cast you away. That will never happen. It cannot happen. Jesus did not commit himself to the crowd, back now in John chapter 2. He did not commit himself to the crowd who believed in him because they were believing because of the signs. And he knew that their faith was a shallow faith. 
Now, scary business if you think that these people came to him for salvation and he didn't commit himself to them. No, 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 no. No, no. The evidence, the fact, the evidence that their faith was not saving, that it was not genuine, that it was shallow, that it was temporary, the evidence of that is the fact that Jesus did not commit himself to them. If they had come to him for eternal life, he would have given them eternal life. He would have lost none. He would not have rejected them. He would have committed himself to fulfill the Father's will, which to raise them up on the last day. But he did not entrust himself or commit himself to them. John chapter 2, again, verse 24. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. He knew all men. Now, you might say, Jim, it sounds to me like you're using the term belief and faith in two different ways. And I am. Because that is how Scripture uses the terms. The Scripture speaks of two different types of faith, two different types of belief. There is a demonic faith. There is a faith that demons have, and they tremble. And there is a faith which is divine in nature, and there is a faith which saves. There is the faith of demons, which demons have, and they tremble. They believe and acknowledge certain intellectual facts about Jesus. Demons are very orthodox in their theology, very orthodox. They know the truth. They affirm the truth. They, they understand the truth. They believe all of those things are true about God. Demons are very orthodox in their faith. They understand truth. And they could swear by any orthodox doctrinal statement because they know those things. And they believe those things to the point, as sent to them mentally, where they tremble before those things. The type of faith that is demonic and cannot save is a human faith. It's of human origin. It's of human making. It's temporary. It's transient. It doesn't endure trials. It doesn't endure persecution. It doesn't endure affliction or suffering. It doubts, it falters, it fails, and eventually it peters out and is no more. The human faith was exercised by the two gentlemen who were sitting next to me in the row at camp the night that I got saved. The human faith, the transient demonic faith, the intellectual ascent, was the type that was exercised by the man, young man sitting in the jail across the glass from me. It's a temporary faith that doesn't endure persecution, and as soon as the emotions wear off, so does the commitment to Jesus Christ. Because Christ does not commit himself to people who believe on him in that way. So there is the faith of demons, and then there is a divine faith. It's a supernatural faith. It's a saving faith. The demonic faith simply trusts Christ for everything except for what Jesus offers. They want from Jesus the best life now, to be a better you, to accomplish great things, to uh, have prosperity, to have peace, to have purpose, to have meaning in life and fulfillment and emotional healing and physical healing and all of the bennies. That's what they want from that Jesus. That is a human faith. The saving faith comes to Jesus for one thing and one thing only, the only thing that he really offers us to us and vouchsafes his word to us for, and that is forgiveness and redemption. And this is a divine faith. It's not of human origin. It's not of human making. It is the gift of God. It does not fail. It does not falter. It will persevere all the way to the end. It endures persecution, sufferings, trials, temptations, and afflictions. It endures all of that because it is a steadfast, persevering, divine faith that God gives to his children that embraces Christ not because of the signs and not for the benefits but for what he offers himself for, and that is the atonement for the sin, my sin. And it embraces Christ and trusts him as an anchor for the soul, fully, wholly, and solely, and nothing else. And it grabs onto him and will not let go, even in the absence of signs, even in the presence of everything which seems to militate against that type of belief. It embraces Christ and trusts Christ all the way to the very end, it's the type of faith that was expressed by Job when he said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. That is divine faith. You cannot explain that humanly. Now, the faith that I saw on the other side of the glass at the jail, the faith exercised by my two best friends when I was in high school, I can explain that all to you humanly. 
It was simply an intellectual, mental assent to certain facts about Jesus, and it did not save them. That type of faith cannot save anyone. There is a demonic faith, and there is a divine faith. The divine faith is a persevering, never-ending, enduring embrace of Christ for all that he offers of himself to us. The demonic faith believes certain intellectual things about Jesus, and it cannot save. Do you understand the difference between those two? Back to John 2. What type of faith or belief did these people in the crowd have? They saw the signs, and they said, we want more of that. This is the best show on earth. He's coming into town. He's doing miracles. Did you see what he did yesterday? Did you see what he did this morning? He was the talk of the town. And people were willing to follow him for the bennies, for the healings, for the signs. And as long as Jesus was performing the signs, they were, quote, unquote, believing in him. But when the signs dry up, when trials and persecutions and temptations and afflictions come, what happens? Same thing that happened in John 6 when Jesus, in the face of all of the multitudes, said to the multitudes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part in me. And they said, too much for us, man. See ya. And they left. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And what Jesus did was call out everybody with a false faith, a human faith. Everybody was there for the benefits. As that type of faith, that human faith cannot save and it embraces Christ for all of the wrong reasons. Now, how can Jesus tell the difference between a demonic faith and a divine faith? How can he tell the difference between that? How does he know who to commit himself to and who he is not committed to? He knows it because he knows all men. That's what John said. He doesn't need anybody to testify to him, hey, this guy has a real faith, Jesus, and this guy's, this guy's faith is, is a pseudo-faith. It's a false faith. He doesn't need anybody to bear witness of man because John says he knows what is in man. Jesus is able to look at the crowd, to look at the people, and he can see Peter and James and John and Andrew and Nathaniel and Bartholomew. He can see those men and he can knows that their faith is genuine. He knows that they are coming to him and believing his word and believing on him. And he can look at the multitude and say, I'm not committed to these because these do not believe on me for who I am offering myself as. That is the Savior of the world. They were there for the signs and Jesus was able to discern the difference between the two. That's why when he chose Judas, it says he chose Judas to fulfill the prophecy. He knew Judas was not a believer. Jesus wasn't tricked. He wasn't tricked by Judas. Judas deceived everybody but Jesus because Jesus saw the heart. And he chose Judas. Judas was the betrayer. Judas betrayed him into the hands of evil men and fulfilled the plan of God. And that was all to fulfill prophecy. It was all part of the plan. And Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. It wasn't a mystery to him. He knew what was in man. And he still does. He's able to look out at any crowd like this one here and he knows whose faith is genuine and whose faith is going to wither and perish. He knows whose faith is demonic and whose faith is divine. He knows who came to him for the right reasons and who came to him for all of the wrong reasons. And he knows who he is committed to and he knows who he is not committed to because their faith is not genuine. And he knows that today. That's an indication of his deity, by the way. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, it says, Thou, O Lord, knowest the hearts, and Thou only knowest the hearts of all men. And John is able here to say, Jesus knew every man's heart. What is he saying? He's omniscient. It's an evidence of his deity. And by the way, you see it played out in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2 when Jesus met 
Peter, what did he say? You're going to be called rock, Cephas, because that's what you're going to become. Jesus was able to look in and see the inner character of Peter and what Peter would eventually become, and he knew Peter well enough to change his name. And then when he saw Nathanael, he said, Indeed, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Looked right into the very heart of Nathanael and discerned the absence of deceit and duplicity in his very heart. And then in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus demonstrates that he knows Nicodemus's faith and, and, and motive for coming. Then in John chapter 4, he says to the woman at the well, when she says, I don't have any husband, he says, Haha, you're right. You've had five husbands and the one you have is not your own. He knew her moral condition, her heart, her motive, her history, marital history, all of that. Then in John chapter 5, he says to the Pharisees, I know you and that the love of God is not in you. And in John chapter 6, it says that he discerned the grumbling and the complaining of his disciples. In chapter 1, 3, 5, and 4, 5, and 6, got my numbers out of order there. The first six chapters, there is an episode or an incident in every single one of those chapters that demonstrates that Jesus knew the heart of everybody who came to him and everybody that he saw and everybody that he met. He looked right into the innermost recesses of their being. Now, right here in our very passage, above chapter, above these verses, above verse 23, and below verse 23 in chapter 3 are two contrasting examples of this type of faith. The disciples, after the resurrection, remember the, G- the words that Jesus had said, and what did we see last week? They what? They believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus spoke. Did they believe because of the signs? Did they believe the signs? What is it that they believed? They saw what Jesus said, and they believed what? The Scripture and the testimony of Jesus. They entrusted, himself to, they entrusted themselves to what God had said, and they believed the Scripture. That's a genuine belief. But then we have the testimony of the crowds. They believed what? As long as Jesus was performing the tricks, as long as he was doing the signs, filling their bellies, healing the sick, raising the dead, as long as he was doing his miracles, then they were believing. Now, in chapter 3, Nicodemus is an example of some who believed on Jesus to whom Jesus had not committed himself. Look at chapter 3. We're going to look at this next week. We're not actually getting into Nicodemus, but he's a good illustration of what we're talking about today. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, there's a connection, by the way, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 is intended, the end of it, is intended to lead us into chapter 3. Whenever we read about Nicodemus, we always start at the beginning of chapter 3. We should start at verse 23 of chapter 2. Because the end of verse chapter 2 says, He did not need for anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man, speaking of people who had believed, but Jesus had not committed himself to, there was such a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, now listen to this orthodox statement, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Is what Nicodemus just said there true? What did Nicodemus believe? He believed in Jesus in a lot of different ways. He believed that he was a teacher, a teacher sent from God, a teacher of the one true God, He believed that the signs that Jesus did was evidence that he was a teacher, that the signs that he did were from God and that they were miracles of God and that God was behind him. He believed that Jesus came from God, came from the very presence of God as a spokesman of God. All very orthodox theology. Nicodemus believed all of that about Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Good, you're good to go. No. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. What was Nicodemus' problem? That he didn't believe in Jesus? No, like the crowds, he believed a lot of things about Jesus. That he was a teacher come from God who performed genuine signs sent by God as a spokesman for God. But Jesus had not committed himself to the crowds, nor had he committed himself to Nicodemus. Because he says to Nicodemus, what you're saying you believe is not sufficient to save you. You must 
be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Your problem is not your orthodox theology, Nicodemus. Your problem is that your orthodox theology has never come into your heart and you have not experienced regeneration. Nicodemus is an example of those in the crowd who believed on him to whom Jesus had not committed himself. I think everything we've looked at in this chapter so far, at the end of this chapter, answers the question that I raised at the very beginning of the message, and that is, what do we do with people who for a long period of time make a profession of faith, they look like Christians, they act like Christians, they look like sheep, they look like tares, they act like sheep and act like tares, may even smell like sheep, but eventually they just turn and walk away and apostatize and remove themselves entirely from the faith. What do we make of people like that? Well, there's a whole category of people that the Bible describes that those type of people fit into that category. They're false converts. They come to Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. I think it's sufficient, or I think it's appropriate that you and I should spend a couple of minutes in self-reflection and ask ourselves, does this describe me? I do this periodically with myself. I preach the gospel to myself, and I ask myself, am I in the faith? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself, test yourselves to see if you be in the faith. And I ask myself this question, what am I trusting Jesus Christ for? This gets to the heart of the issue. Ask yourself this, why did I come to Christ, and what am I trusting him for? There are a hundred answers to that question which will damn you for all of eternity. You may say, Jim, I've always been a Christian. I was born a Christian. I was a Christian before I was born. In my mother's womb, I was a Christian because I grew up in a Christian family and my dad used to read uh, Bible verses to me when I was still in my mommy's belly and I was baptized as soon as I came out the womb and I've always believed in God and we grew up that way. I'm here to tell you, if that's your answer to the question, you are damned right now under the judgment of God. Not because you were baptized as a baby, but because you're trusting in that baptism as a baby to save you and not Christ. You need to trust instead in Christ. Nothing that your parents have ever said on your behalf or ever done on your behalf has availed for you at all. It is solely the grace of God. And the need of everyone, Christian family or unchristian family, is regeneration. Or you may say, Jim, I went to a meeting and... Emotional song played. It was an emotional moment. I went forward in emotion. I cried my eyes out and I prayed the little sinner's prayer and I think I'm good to go and I had a real, I felt different inside. If that, depending on the message that you responded to, if that's your answer, you may very well be damned for all of eternity too and under the wrath of God even as you sit here. Because you may have come forward to get purpose in your life or peace in your life or prosperity or emotional healing, but that's not what Jesus offers himself for. Or the answer to the question for you may be, well, I was going through a real tough time and uh, experienced the death in the family and a real financial struggle, and I just felt God was close to me and really warmed my heart, and I just knew that God was going to pull me through it, and ever since then, I've just had this relationship with God and felt Him very close to me. Now, you're under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. Or you may say, I have been sitting here in church for a number of months and even years And I have really come to understand deeply exactly the things that you're saying. I understand Scripture more now. I understand Christ more now. I think I've got it all. I think I've got it all together. I understand things more now than I ever have in my whole life. That's really good. That's all fine and good. But that doesn't save you. That's only sufficient to make you a very educated occupant of hell. What you need is regeneration. What's the answer to the question? At some point, if you're genuinely saved, you have to be able to say, I came to a point where I understood that I am a wretch and I am a worm and I am the chief of sinners and I have lied, I have stolen, I have blasphemed, I have disobeyed my parents, I have violated every standard that God has ever set up 
and I have pushed past the standard off into darkness. And I deserve nothing but the wrath and the judgment of God. And I came to the point of understanding that it is not purpose that I need. It is not peace that I need. It is not prosperity that I need. It is righteousness that I need. I need somebody to make me righteous because I am unrighteous. I have to stand someday before a holy God. How am I going to stand in the presence of a holy God being an unrighteous sinner like I am? I understood that. And so there came a point when I laid down my arms in rebellion to Him and I bowed the knee to the Savior and I acknowledged that His death was sufficient to pay the price for my sin and I am trusting in that death and that death alone. I have come to Jesus Christ for one reason and that is for salvation, for eternal life, for redemption, for forgiveness because that is my most pressing need, righteousness. I need to be forgiven and I need to be given a righteousness. And so I laid down my arms and I surrendered to Him I turned from my sin and I have believed on Him. And the only way, how do I know I'm saved? Because the only way I will ever be lost is if Jesus Christ is a failure and He fails to do what He has promised that He will do. And that is to not lose me, to give me eternal life, and to raise me up at the last day. The only way I can perish is if He fails to fulfill His promise. And I am trusting in Him and His ability to come through and His ability to deliver me from my sin, and I'm trusting in Him and Him only, and Him wholly, and Him solely, and nobody else. At some point, you have to be able to say that. And you say, Jim, I don't think I could ever articulate it as theologically or clearly. I didn't ask you if you could say it as clearly and theologically as I just said it. I'm asking you, does that describe you? Is that why you've come to Jesus? He did not come to give you purpose for living. He did not come to give you peace. He did not come to give you prosperity. He did not come to offer you your best life now. He did not come to enable you to accomplish great things on this planet. He did not come to make your marriage happier, your job better, or everything hunky-dory. He doesn't offer himself for any of those things. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and translate us to the kingdom of his son. He came to give us righteousness and redemption and forgiveness. Have you come to Jesus Christ for that reason and that reason alone? Anything else will damn you. I don't say this because I hate you. I say this because I love you. And my prayer and my hope is that nobody who ever sits within the walls of this building or any building that we ever meet in will think that they are close to Jesus and die and an instant later find out that Jesus was not close to them. They had committed themselves to Him but for all of the wrong things and for all of the wrong reasons and that Jesus had never committed himself to them, to save them, to raise them up, and to carry them through to everlasting life. I say this because I love you. Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. You do not want to be among the multitude who say, Lord, Lord, I thought I had it right. And have him say, no, you came to me for this, 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 and this. But I offered you this, and you never wanted that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings that are in your word that encourage us to examine our hearts and ourselves. These are sobering things and sobering reminders that not all faith is genuine, not all commitment to Christ will save. We know that the broad way will be occupied and populated with people who name the name of Christ, confess the name of Christ, who look like sheep and look like wheat, that they are tares and they are goats, and they have come to him for all the wrong reasons. And God, my prayer is that there would be nobody here Nobody here this morning who we find out after they die 
that Jesus was not committed to them. Thank you for a pure faith. Thank you for an enduring faith and a divine faith which saves and which will raise us up on the last day. We commit ourselves, our hearts, and our minds, and our souls entirely to Christ, for he is glorious and he is good, and we thank you for him in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.